So we've had this moment marked down for a while. It's kind of our Sunday that we launch into the summer. And I feel like our series that we did in May called The Way perfectly teed up what we are about to bring for the summer. So I got two different series titles that I want to give to you. And you can take whichever one you want as the one you're going with for the summer. One of them is for our more traditional church background friends. And one of them is for the people who need like a cool, current, contemporary name. Okay? Because you know we have both in this church. No, we have people who are in here right now who just like the, the fog and the lights and some of these instruments made them super uncomfortable. And I forget that because that was me in 1998 when I first walked into a contemporary church. But you need to know, we got different groups of people. So if you're in the more traditional group, this series is called First Peter. It's a sermon series on the book of First Peter. We're going verse by verse through the book of First Peter. So, so for all of you, your friends, who go, oh, you go to that, you go to that church that preaches topically. You go to that church that guy, that guy just talks about what he's feeling like this week. Well, clearly you haven't listened because we're so rooted in the Word of God and humbly obedient every week. But if you've just been dying for a verse by verse teaching through a New Testament letter, this summer is for you. It's called First Peter. But if you're if you're more on the edgy side, if you're more caught, if you're more like, oh, okay, I need something that that hooks me more than First Peter. As exciting as that title is. This series is called Built Different. Built Different. Can you look at somebody next to you and say, I'm built different. I'm built, say, it, say it with confidence. I'm built different. <laughs> now, this is a phrase that's very popular with the kids these days. Now, when I say kids these days, I'm in this alarmingly sobering reality as a 32-year-old that I'm fading out of cool. You guys know that there is a generation, if you're in your early 30s, late 20s, I need, to, I need to clue you in on something. There's a younger generation who has risen up behind us who are making fun of us. And, and, and there's entire Instagram accounts about millennials by people who are Gen Z. Do you know what they call us? There's this word that's, that's kind of circulating right now. It's called chuggy. And I don't know if you've heard this. Is that, is that how you say it? Okay, see, I'm not even that current. And I was like, it's like, and, and every word of what they're describing when they say it, I'm like, that's me. And I thought it was cool. And, and that's, that's like people I know. That's my friends. And so I try to stay current. Being at Tides this week definitely helped me stay aware of all the things I don't know. But I used to be a lot more into the mainstream, what was happening with the kids and what was happening with the teenagers. There's this phrase that's going around TikTok. It's going around social media. It's going around everywhere you look. And it's, and it's this phrase, I'm built different. And the whole idea is, I'm on another level. Now, there's some pride behind that, but usually you say it about somebody else. Like that, see that guy, you're talking about an athlete, you're talking about a musician. It's like they are, they are just built different. There's something different about them. There's something that's on the next level. There's something happening there that, that, that's growing in a way that looks different than everybody else around them. And I got this title out of 1 Peter chapter 2. I don't want you to turn there because this is just kind of our base for where we're operating from for the whole summer. It's from this verse. This is what Peter wrote. He said, as you come to him, the living stone, don't turn there, just read it, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As you come to, to him, Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God. You might want to circle that because the whole theme of 1 Peter is what it means to live in the world but not of the world, to be rejected by the world to be, but be approved by God, to be chosen and set apart by God but to be totally maligned and exiled in the world. 
rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. I believe God is doing a major work of building Auburn Community Church right now. And when I say that, I'm not talking about the building that we are building on Hamilton Road. It's awesome. And we even use the blueprints for that building as the background of this artwork. So if you look up here and and behind the traditional looking church is sort of an outline of what our building is going to look like on Hamilton Road. I think that's so cool. That's so artistic. But the reason why that's up there is to remind you that as there's a group of people building a building a few miles from here that we're going to meet in, God is building our church, but he's not building our church at a construction site over there. He's building our church in our hearts in this room. So when we sang that, it's not a building you want to fill. It's my heart. This empty space is what you wanted all along. What God is going to grow and build into the life of our church this summer has less to do with a physical building and more to do with spiritual people who are going, God, build my life and whatever it looks like for me to walk in the way of Jesus and grow into who you have called me to be, I'm open. I'm available. So God, build your church and start right here. And we just went through a whole month where we did a sermon series called The Way. And I don't really want Built Different to be a new series as much as I want it to be a continued conversation of where we were living all month long. We were talking about reorienting our lives around walking in the way of Jesus. But when you do that, there's this painful process called sanctification where Jesus slowly strips away things about your old life and slowly introduces new things. And his way of doing that is by having you spiritually slowly let go of the agreements and the soul ties and the strongholds that hold you back into who you used to be and set you free for a brand new level of holding on to who he says you are in Christ. So God's going to do deep work. Why is he going to do deep work? Because if you want to build something great, it starts with foundational work. Anybody driven by Hamilton Road lately? A lot of trucks. A lot of dirt, not that impressive, <laughs> going to look a lot better in a year, better. <laughs> but if we don't do that, what's built then won't matter. And if you don't do the deep work of letting Jesus unearth the soul ties and the agreements that hold you back as a believer into who you used to be, you will not walk in the new life that is yours by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know about you, but I have this dangerous tendency of following Jesus, but not even noticing all the agreements in my soul that still exist between me and the person that I used to be. Like, Jesus, I'm fully surrendered to you. Okay. But not this. <laughs> like, I got this stuff that I'm holding. I got this habit. I got this group of thoughts. And I never say that out loud to God. I mean it when I say, you can have it all. But you don't really mean that. You don't. And Jesus knows that. It's not that he can't handle the true state of your heart. It's that he wants to slowly unearth and surrender and free you to walk into who you really are. And so that is my introduction for Built Different. Are y'all ready to go into the word of God? It's going to be good. If you brought your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up all over this space. Come on. I think this is such a powerful picture of what our church is all about. Hold it up high. Gosh, I just looked at a guy who was like, I'm so annoyed that I have to hold up the living and breathing word of God that God put in my own language and put in my hand. I'm sorry. I'm going savage mode. All right. Turn with me, everybody, to 1 Peter chapter 1. It's at the end of your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to ask this question repeatedly throughout this series. First Peter was written by who? 
Not a trick question. Peter, guys. Jeez. Some of the elders in here and myself are like, man, we got work to do if we're going to show up faithful in heaven. All right. Peter. First Peter was written by Peter, but he had help. He had the help of a guy who helped Paul write a lot of his letters. His name's Silas or Silvanus. And it says that at the very end of the letter. And so a lot of first Peter will feel like it's a Paul letter. And in seminary, the, the kind of one-line summary that I got from my seminary professor, you know him, Dr. Bruce Lowe, was that First Peter is a Paul-like letter designed to urge Christians to be in the world but not of the world. In but not of. You live here, but it's not your home. And so we're going to come back to that theme again and again, and later on in this sermon, you're going to see why it's so important to remember that Peter's writing this. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. If you're there, say, I'm there. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance." That is not a throwaway introduction. It's one of the most powerful introductions and theologically rich introductions in the entire Bible. Let's read it again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles. There it is. Who's Peter writing to? Christians. But the way he characterizes Christians is as people who have been chosen, elected by God, but who have also been singled out as foreigners and strangers in the world that they live in. Scattered. So he's preaching to Christians, primarily Gentile Christians, who have been scattered throughout many different provinces over the Greco-Roman world. And he says this statement. This is one of the most clarifying statements about the Trinity. You will never understand fully how God is three in one. I don't think our brains are created to fully grasp that. But this is one of the most pivotal statements in the Bible. Who have been, this is true about you if you're a Christian, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. This is how the Trinity works hand in hand to save you. It begins with being chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You're not saved because you conjured up the energy to choose God. You are saved because you are adopted into a family by your heavenly Father who wanted you and chose you and set you apart. Everything about walking with Jesus is dependent on family agreement. So you go, I've got a new family. Well, uh, what does a family hinge on? The approval of a father. Your life spiritually begins with the fact that you already have God's approval because what God spoke over Jesus when Jesus was baptized, this is my son with whom I am well pleased, that is the fuel that led to his ministry and ultimately the statement that becomes our banner because Jesus takes our place on the cross, we take Jesus' place in the sight of God. The gospel is about a switch, an offer of a trade-off between the righteousness of God and the sin of man and you are chosen, you are wanted by the foreknowledge of God the Father before the foundation of the world. It's beautiful. Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Don't ignore that. So once God has set in motion salvation on your behalf, it is completed, it is progressed by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives on the inside of you and does what? Connects you to Jesus. It makes you obedient to Jesus. And then I love this. It says, and sprinkled with his blood. 
So over time, you're progressively becoming more and more obedient to the Son of God, your rabbi, the one who you've decided to follow. But even when you're not obedient, guess what? You've been sprinkled with his blood. That word sprinkled in the Greek does not mean a little bit, like, oh, just sprinkle you. No, it means like under a waterfall. It means your whole soul is covered with forgiveness, covered with love, and covered with freedom that comes from knowing that the blood of Jesus has won you over. So that's how I wanted to start this series. Now, everybody look up here. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father, sanctified by the Spirit, obedient to Jesus, and sprinkled with his blood. We cannot afford for those things to be theological affirmations that we say we believe on a page. We cannot afford for those truths to be things that we go, I believe in this, this is, this is what my faith is based on, that God, as good as doctrine is, and as good as it is to make sure you're aligned with the truth of God's word. I just got a like, point blank question to ask you. Do you 100% believe in your life, in your story right now, that those words are true about you? Peter's writing to Christians 2,000 years ago. He could be writing to you. He could not be writing to you. How do you know? How do you know that you are one of those who has been chosen by the Father, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus, made obedient to Christ over time by the power of the Holy Spirit? How do you really know? And that's the deep question I want to begin this series with, and I already regret going there because I don't really want to preach what I'm about to preach. But God has so heavily said to me, this message has to go out. This has to be one that we have to look back on for years to come, and it has to be one that helps you clarify because I believe the greatest gift we could give you as the church is to be honest with you about where you stand with God. So the message today is called, How Do I Know? How do I know? If I'm being built different, how do I know I'm one of those? How do, you, how do you know you're saved? How do you know you're in the family of God? How do you know that some of the truths that we're saying right now are true about you? This question might not be that important to you, but it's one of the most commonly asked questions in the Christian faith, and it is the most common question for someone who is terminally ill. Do you know that? There's something that happens at the end of someone's life when they go, all right, I'm ready to, to figure this thing out. I watched this with my father-in-law. I watched this a few weeks ago with a Dear, dear part of our church and a family that's connected to our church who one of the main questions I got from this man was, okay, I've been walking with Jesus. I know the truth, but like how, really tell me, how do I know? How do I make sure my soul is secure in the sight of God? And I don't enter into answering this question lightly, but I do believe that everything about your Christian journey depends on your willingness to take hold of your identity by faith. And so if you're not sure whether or not that's true about you, that's a problem. Like you are harming what God could be doing in and through this church if you are unsure. Or you're harming it more if you think you're sure and actually you're not in. So like there's three different groups of people in this room. One of them are people who are faithfully, humbly surrendered to Jesus. They know that they're a part of the family of God and they're walking in their new identity. It's not perfect, but they're growing in Christ. And that's awesome. There's also a group of people in this room who you don't believe in Jesus. And you need to know you're not the enemy you're not just like a guest and a visitor. We want you to slowly consider whether or not Jesus is the right option for your life and watch and ask questions and humbly seek, but we believe he's right for everybody. And we believe that over time, you're gonna, you're gonna grow and you're gonna come to see that. But listen, the group of people who are gonna harm what God's doing here are not the people who don't believe in Jesus and know it. It's the group of people who think they are believers in Jesus, but actually they're not who think that they were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, being sanctified over time and being sprinkled with his blood, 
and actually they just believe some theological affirmations but don't have any living proof of being built different in their lifestyle. And so that's why I want to answer this question, because I want to go to a deep level with you, and I want to go to a deep level within my own soul to actually ask, what does it look like to know that I know that I know that I'm in the family of God? And here's Peter's answer. Two words. Chosen exiles. This is the theme of 1 Peter, that if you're in the family of God, you live in this dualistic reality where your belonging in the family of God is so firm, so secure, it is set in stone. And at the exact same time, you stand out like a sore thumb in this world. Do you see how these are like competing tensions? It's like on the one hand, you couldn't belong more. And on the other hand, you couldn't stand out more and be more out of place. And you live in both of those realities right now. Here's what I want you to do. Think about the place in your life or in the world where you feel the highest sense of belonging. Where are you the most confident version of yourself? Where are you like, I feel like fully in myself in this space? For me, it's the living room of my house. That is when you will get me the most unfiltered, don't care what I look like, don't care what it sounds like. Don't, I, I mean, I am totally myself there. Think about that for you. Now, think about the place that you feel the most out of place in the world. For me, it's camping. Okay, and so th think of the place where you're like, I am not me. I, 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 this, is, this is not my comfort zone. I, I don't belong. I don't, I, I, see, see you, you, you want to know why they're opposites? The answer is air conditioning. <laughs> and the answer is I believe modern technology was created to grow us and, and, and actually welcome us into this new era where we live inside houses and animals live outside. And, and I got all these thoughts about that. I'm just very, I'm very, very indoor, indoor, Okay. Here's what, here's what Peter's saying. He's saying the place that you feel the most amount of belonging and the place that you feel the most like an alien and a stranger, both of those realities coexist in the life that you live right now. So you 100% know that you belong in the family of God. And it's 100% clear that you do not fit in with the way the world around you is living their lives. And so you're about to see the most theologically dense, rich truth about how these two realities play out in the life of a Christian that we have within the pages of Scripture. Chosen exiles. And I want you to read it. First Peter chapter 1. Go to verse 3. Here we go. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls." Beautiful. Chosen exiles. And verses three through five are all about the first reality. Go back to the very beginning. Praise be to the God and Father, I love the family language, of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. 
I love that phrase, in his great mercy. Did you know God is rich in mercy? Did a whole sermon about this this fall, one of my favorites, where we talked about how God doesn't distribute mercy as a commodity that he owns, but he uses mercy as an outpouring of his personhood. So the more he distributes, the more he becomes who he is. You know, every time you've ever needed mercy from God, you haven't taken from him. You've given him an opportunity to do what he exists to do. God is so rich in mercy. You don't, you don't deplete God the more you go, God, I need you again. I need, I need hope again. I need life again. I need encouragement again. I need breath again. God, I need a vision of who you are again. You're not taking from a God who's going, okay, I'm so rich in this stuff that I'm a giver, I'm generous, and so I'll give to you. But we kind of feel a little bit like we're depleting God of his mercy. You know, every time you've ever needed mercy from God, you've only given him an opportunity to do what he wants to do. Not just what he wants to do, but who he is. God is rich in mercy. What does he do with his rich mercy? He gives us new birth into a living hope. Now, I've said the word chosen like 25 times in this sermon so far. And I'm not naive to the fact that this is the debate that exists within Christianity. How does God's sovereignty and the free will of humanity collide in the scriptures? What do you do with people who are like, I am, we are chosen by God. The plan's already set in stone beforehand. It's just a movie that he's watching. What do you do with people who are like, no, God gives freedom and people make choices and there's consequences for choices and we either choose God or we walk away from God and there's arguments against each side. There's verses that back up each side. I've got to at least address this, but I feel like this passage does the best job of balancing out the fact that God is sovereign and the one who initiates and finishes our salvation and at the same time, choices matter. Prayers matter, and you and I have a part to play in this story. Both true, but I have to at least solidify this one in stone. When it says that his rich mercy has given us new birth, that is an unequivocal, undeniable statement about the fact that your salvation was a work of God 1,000% from start to finish without your participation. Because no one who has ever been born decided to be born. You ever thought about that? Like, I didn't ask to be in this family. I didn't ask to grow up in this home. No, no, no. Birth is the decision of parents. So for him to start the letter saying, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. There's people who will read that and go, so God like looked through all of, all of the, the future and decided those. He said, mm, who's going to choose me? Nope, that's not birth. That's growing to an age of accountability and making a decision. Birth is an initiation from God. This is so good and would be so good for you to pay so close attention and not be writing me off as a heretic right now. When it says God has given us new birth into a living hope, it is saying that it is his idea, his choosing, and his wanting of his people who are resurrected from the dead. Totally a part of the acts of their will totally apart from any participation on our part. But the great thing about this passage is the way it fleshes out. So stay with me. If that makes you uncomfortable, you have to stay with me because Peter has this unique ability to exist in the middle of multiple tensions. Watch this. Into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into, this is crazy, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at last time. So not only do you get new birth, not only do you get chosen, not only do you get elected by God, not only do you get saved, you get stuff. <laughs> it's crazy. It's, and it's shielded, kept in heaven for you. It's like guarded by God. 
And over time, your faith that you display in God is the proof of the fact that all of this is yours, given by God. So if the passage stopped right there, we would just say, we're chosen. But there's a second half to this. And we are not called to read the scriptures into moments where the sovereignty of God is on display in ways that we don't fully understand and sit on our hands and ignore human responsibility. Peter's not done. Watch this. Look at verse 6. In all of this, you greatly rejoice. Why wouldn't you? You didn't do anything. In all of this, you greatly rejoice. God did everything for you, saved you, sustained you, sanctified you, got you stuff forever in heaven. In all of this, you greatly rejoice. And then he's like, oh, that's not the end of the story. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Hold up. What? I got to suffer? I, got, I have to do stuff that proves the genuineness of my faith? I thought... I thought I was just chosen. No, you're a chosen exile. And so if all you do is embrace one side of this, you end up with a skewed version of Christianity that either looks like laziness or legalism. And so it looks like laziness when you're like, God did it all, chosen, don't have to tell anybody about Jesus, don't have to change anything about my reality. I know a lot of people who are like this. I don't have to do anything. God does it all. Grace, 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 grace. Chosen. No, chosen exiles. The exile part of it is that you stand out in the world around you because you're being made more holy, you're joyfully suffering in a broken world, and it's resulting in the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold. And he goes on to say at the very end of this that it's gonna, the end result is going to be the salvation of your souls. You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, the salvation of my soul, I, how is that the end result of the proven genuineness of my faith? That's what I mean. Both of these realities collide in real time in the life of a Christian. So it's all God but yet the proven genuineness of our faith reveals whether or not we are exiles. And so I would say, if you're here and you're like, I know I'm in the family of God because I believe all of that stuff, okay? If there is zero evidence of you being in exile and standing out in this world, you probably don't need to grasp and take hold of the fact that you're chosen. Because one reveals the other. If you are willing to suffer, if you're willing to obey, if you're willing to walk humbly, not perfectly, if you're willing to step into this new life, then that is the proof and the fruit of being chosen by God. But just sitting here and claiming that God did it all for you and you don't have to do anything is actually the evidence that you're not one of those. You could be, and today could be your wake-up call. You don't get one without the other. We Look up here. The call of God on your life depends on your willingness to embrace both of these realities. You have to hold on to the fact that you are in the family of God and it had nothing to do with you. And you have to hold on to the fact that your life must stand out and holiness must grow and you must suffer and you must be willing to lay your life on the line to follow Jesus. And the way both of those realities align is in the life of a believer who sees Jesus as the all-satisfying supreme treasure of their souls. So we don't live on one extreme or the other. Jesus doesn't live in extremes. He's full of both. Fully grace, fully truth. Fully sovereign. And you are fully responsible in this moment and accountable for the word that you're hearing. And only God has the capacity to take competing realities and combine them in a way that's so supernatural. I worry about even making this about all those theological realities because I really just want to go face to face with you at the table and ask the question, how do you know? 
How do you know today that you are a chosen exile? How do you know that your life is being built different? And so here's where I bring you into all of the the weight of what was happening against me this week. I'm prepping this sermon and I'm reading this passage. I'm going, God, I'm literally going to ask people, how do they know that they're saved? How do they know they're going to heaven? How do they know they have the power of the Holy Spirit? I'm pouring over this passage again and again and again. Holy Spirit, illuminate my eyes. Holy Spirit, show me what you need to say. You guys need to know, I do not prepare sermons as performances. I beg God to show me what he wants to say to you. When I get my heart in that posture and he has these moments where he's like, look at this, look at this, look at this. There's no level of gratitude that I have for those moments, but it's also what I hate the most about this job. God, just, just spell it in the sky. Just say it. But when the Holy Spirit illuminates something, and it was this phrase that Peter said that awakened me to the fact that I think the answer of how you know whether or not you are in the family of God is less about what is written on the pages that we are reading and more about who wrote the pages that we are reading. If you tune me out, you need to pay so close attention to what I'm about to say right now. It's less about the content of what we are reading and more about remembering the character who's behind this. That theme of chosen exiles, that's coming from a very specific character in the New Testament, Peter himself. And so if you look at the life of Peter and ask the question, well, if Peter knows this to be true about believers... How did Peter get to this revelation himself? Walking in close community with Jesus for years, and you go, well, he was you know, chosen by Jesus. So was Judas. So you look at, okay, what's the difference between the two of them? By the way, many narrative of the Gospel of John is that you're supposed to read the Gospel of John as a character comparison of Judas and Peter. And John wrote himself into the gospel as the disciple whom Jesus loved, because this is just, this is just mind-blowing for those of you who like seminary-level stuff. When you read John, what you want to do is you want to read it as, I want to be the disciple whom Jesus loved. I don't want to be Judas. I am Peter. I have a decision to make. That's how he wrote it. Like He wants you to keep seeing these glimpses of, Peter, you're Peter. What are you going to do? You're Peter. What are you going to do? You're Peter. And you know what's striking is that even though this whole gospel is a contrast of the two of them, They're not that different. You ever thought about how much Judas and Peter have in common? Both chosen by Jesus for very special and significant roles. Peter is in the inner inner circle, but don't discount Judas. Judas was in charge of Jesus' money, y'all. I'll tell you this right now. The people who we put in charge of the finances of this church, we make sure that they are people of integrity, that they are people of character. That's a big position. Jesus going, you, you're in charge of the money. Judas and Peter, both chosen for amazing roles in the story of God. And both have the exact same misconception about the kingdom of God and the exact same failure. Think about it. Judas and Peter both wanted the same thing. They wanted to bait Jesus into bringing the kingdom that they thought he was bringing on planet earth sooner than Jesus was going to and in a different way than Jesus came to bring it. Both of them wanted deliverance from the Roman Empire. Don't read Judas's betrayal as this guy was just greedy and wanted more money. He had plenty, trust me. The women following Jesus around, nobody talks about this. They were funding everything. And Judas was helping himself to what they were giving. That's a long story for another day. But I want you to think about this. Judas did not betray Jesus because he was just done. He betrayed Jesus to instigate the rebellion that they thought was coming. 
He wanted it sooner. He didn't want this kingdom of God that doesn't exist as a political government. He wanted deliverance from Rome for the people of God. So what did he do? He sold them for 30 pieces of silver. But when he did that and kissed Jesus on the cheek, what did Peter do? Pulled out his sword. Why? Because Peter's like, yeah, it's game time. Why do they even have the sword? Because they're waiting for this. They've seen all these miracles for years, and they're going, we're here. It's time. He just said his time. I don't know what he's talking about with all this. I'm going to die and go away and then come back. I don't know what that means, but I do. And, and even when Jesus would talk about that, you know what Peter said? No, never. You're, you're not going to die. Jesus called him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are against what I've come to do. And so I look at Judas and Peter, and I go, this is the exact same thing. Betrayed the night before he dies by Judas. How did, how did Peter betray him? He gets the sword out, cuts off a guy's ear. Jesus heals that guy. Peter follows Jesus around and eventually denies him by a campfire where he cusses out a little girl. He goes away and weeps bitterly. Judas goes away and weeps bitterly. There is very little different about these two guys. So how is the outcome so different? Judas hangs himself. Peter, we know, is reinstilled into the kingdom of God. The word Peter means rock, and it's his confession that the church is built on, and it's his sermon in the book of Acts that leads to 3,000 people being saved. So if, if everything looks the same, what's different? What's being built different between the two of them? And this is where God showed me this, and I was like, you gotta be kidding me, you gotta be kidding me. It's the same thing that's different between the person in this room that's truly growing in their faith and the person in this room who's just pretending. Go to verse eight. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Here's the difference. Peter loved Jesus. Judas loved what Jesus could do for Judas. That's the difference. Peter loved Jesus. Judas loved what Jesus could do for Judas. And that's the reason why when Jesus shows up on the beach and cooks breakfast, he asked Peter the same question three times. People read that and they go, John 21, why does Jesus rub Peter's face in his own failure? He's given him his spanking. He's given him his discipline for, hey, you're going to deny me three times? I'm going to make a fire, charcoal fire, by the way. The only other time there's a charcoal fire in the New Testament was the fire that Peter was warming himself by. He wants Peter to smell the scene of where he denied him. And he wants to go, hey, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? No, 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 no. Jesus wasn't rubbing Peter's face in his failure. He was taking him to the point of greatest scarring, of, of, of greatest wounding and bringing healing. And how did he bring healing? By asking him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And those three affirmations were not to test and find out whether or not Peter loved Jesus. It was to remind Peter that Jesus knew that Peter loved Jesus even though he failed. And watch this, Peter's love for Jesus was not something that Peter conjured up. It was something that was planted there by Jesus. God is love, and this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That scene by the fire is Jesus going, I know you love me, and it's okay. 
And so the question that we have to answer today in real time is not, okay, well, you go into the scriptures and you go, okay, well, Jesus told Judas beforehand, I already know that you're going to, you're going to betray me and your life is basically ruined. But Peter, even though you're going to deny me, I have prayed for you even though the enemy has sought to sift you as wheat. I've prayed for you. And when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. You're not supposed to read that and go, well, I guess we'll just find out whether or not Jesus chose me or not. You're supposed to read that and ask the question, what's the, what's the difference of the heart posture between these two guys? And there are some of you in this room who you have not known this, but your whole life, you have never really been a Christian. Because all you've ever really loved about Jesus is the, the eternal insurance he gives you, but you don't know him. How do I know? How do I know? Do you know him? Because though you have not seen him, you love him. If you're here today and you're wondering whether or not you're really a believer, I believe the test is very simple. It doesn't have to do with your works, and it doesn't have to do with getting a theological vision of what God did for you. It has to do with this question. We'll put it on the screen. Deepest sermon of the year. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? We have to cut through the complicated, y'all. This is so simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, do you love him? Do you see that name up there? And is he somebody you walk with? Is he somebody you talk with? Is he somebody that like deep within your soul, even despite your worst failures and all the inconsistencies of your past that you wish weren't there, do you really love him? And do you find it in yourself that no matter how many times you try to run away from him, there's this love that's been planted there to go, even if I wanted to leave you, I couldn't. Even if I wanted to do something else with my life, I love you so much and I can't leave. Because I have found you. This is Christianity, y'all. Christianity is I have found you to be the all-satisfying, all-fulfilling. Everything I want in life comes down to knowing you and trusting you and loving you. Y'all, that's a Christian. A Christian is not someone who can regurgitate the Ten Commandments and then say John 3.16 and say, thank God he saved us from all the things we did wrong. That's not it. A Christian is a lifestyle of worship and true love. Listen, I... Are you in love with Jesus? Because where love is present, worship is unmistakable. Do you love him? And if you love him, is it clear? And I don't say this message to scare you into loving Jesus today. That is not my intention. I say this message today to give assurance to some of you who have wondered whether or not your track record reveals that you don't belong to God. No, no, no. You know if this love is planted in you. But if you're here today and you're going, I've known about Jesus for a long time and I've loved what he like does for me, but I, don't, I can't love him if I don't know him. It's okay. It's okay to be in church for 30 years and go, I don't know you, but I'd love to start today. Because we live in an era where the Holy Spirit in a split second can unite believers to the power of Jesus. Let me close by reading this. This, this will just rock your world. This is how the passage ends. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you 
when they spoke of the things that have now been told by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Y'all, what is he saying? He's saying when the Old Testament writers caught glimpses by the power of the Holy Spirit of what was going to happen when the Holy Spirit went out to fill believers, they were filled with agonizing expectation to just see the day that we're living in right now. He says, even angels long to look into the era that we are living in right now. They wanted to know, what in the world is God up to? The reason why I need you to know whether or not you're filled with the Holy Spirit and whether or not you're in the family of God is because you live in an era of absolutely unprecedented potential for the glory of God. And you live in an era of unadulterated communion with God that's available for you. So why are you settling for what the United States of America offers you in 2021? Why are you settling for that relationship? Why are you settling for greed? Why are you settling for a substance that can medicate your pain? Why are you settling for less than the love that comes and burns away every desire that's available for you in Jesus Christ? Man, I'm so, see, I'm so serious about what God is doing in the world because I have felt the heaviness that has come over our world and our country and even our community. If in your life for the past year, you are like me and you have experienced more spiritual oppression, more temptation to leave God behind, more of a tendency in yourself to walk away, that's not an evidence of the fact that God is losing his grip on your life. That is the evidence of the fact that God has something so new and so special right in front of you. But this is not a list of do's and don'ts and a list of rules and restrictions and a systemized approach to beliefs and doctrines. This is about a love relationship with the savior of your soul. And it's available for you today. Do you love Jesus? And maybe today is just a simple opportunity to reaffirm the fact, not I believe in you, not I trust you, but not I love you, I want you. And maybe you'll experience the same peace that Peter experienced on that beach when the son of God looks back at you and goes, I know you do, because I put that there. It's not about our effort. It's totally about the spirit. You can put your notes away. I, I, we don't have a plan for what we're about to sing. I called Matt yesterday. I was like, I just feel like the end of this sermon is going to be open-ended. And you can sing whatever you want to sing. You can sing nothing. Like, I, we don't know what this moment is supposed to be. Because we wanted to leave room and leave space for the Spirit to do what the Spirit wanted to do. Would you stand to your feet all over this place? As they come up here, I want to pray for you. And we'll just see what God does. Heavenly Father, I pray in the mighty name of Jesus that as your Spirit is speaking now, that we would not ignore or discount how you are prodding our hearts. I pray for people who have been pretending their entire lives that they would surrender to you that they would proclaim their love for you. And God, that we would know our love for you originated with your love for us. God, that we would be okay looking different than the rest of the world around us, that our lives would stand out in the way we worship, in the way we give, in the way we serve, in the way we sacrifice, in the way we come alongside people who are suffering. God, we wanna be built different. We want to be built different. So God, I do pray that you weed out from among us those who are pretending 
And I do pray that you awaken a brand new ambition for loving you and knowing you and walking humbly with you right here and right now. This is your space. Come and do whatever you want to do. In Jesus' name.